Welcome everyone to Plugged and Unplanned and it's Tony Nash, the CEO of Booktopia, back with you again. And today I have a debut author, Brian Hartzer, the Leadership Star, a practical guide to building engagement. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. The Leadership Star. I mean, the, the choice of the title, it's kind of like, for me, when I think about that, it's that horizon point, that ever elusive end goal that you like a hologram that you never get to get, but you're always kind of working towards. Is that, um, is that how you, you see it as well? Well, it does double duty in that sense. I think it's a terrific analogy. I haven't expressed it quite like that, but it's actually quite right in that, as you would know from, from being a learning as a CEO through the journey you've had, um, the notion that you, you can have a, a, a formula that solves leadership is just not right. You're always learning. You're always going through new experiences. You're always having things go right, things go wrong. You get better. And I think it is a it is this kind of aspirational journey in a sense. The, the title didn't come from that, though. It actually came from I had read. Um, I'm, I've always been a big reader. And early in my career, I read every business book I could get my hands on. And I always found that I'd get a few things out of them. But often by the end of the book, frankly, I would have forgotten what I'd read. And um, I don't know about you, but you probably had that experience. And um, and so I thought, well, if I'm going to share this set of things that I've learned with people, I'd really like to do it in a way that it's memorable and that you don't have to go back and pull the back book back off the shelf. I mean, it'd be great. Hopefully there's a lot of detail in it that people would find useful as a reference. But I wanted to create something that people could remember simply. And I came up with this framework for this topic of engagement that I decided to write about. Uh, that had five points. And I thought, well, okay, five points, five points in a star, leadership star. If I can give people that visual image that they go star, five things, okay, what are the five things? And in my case, they all start with C. So all you have to remember basically is five Cs and you can recreate the book in your head um, is, is what I've tried to achieve with that. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of explaining where this title came from. Right, no, it's interesting because um, one of the things for me is that, and I do talk about this in my keynotes as well, is uh, like I've been trained um, at work to first aid, you know, like you go into the room and you get your certificate at the end of it and you pump the little dummy and you do all the things and you learn which way you've got to lay them. And if, yep. uh, if um, this happens, right, and you're there. But when the, when the crap hits the fan, can you remember anything about what it was ever taught to you in in that environment? And and I mean, for example, I, I've probably mentioned it on other podcasts, but um, to, if those that haven't listened to any others other than this one, my neighbor had was doing some work in his garden and fell two meters onto a bank and then another two meters onto his driveway and hit his head and was unconscious. So I was reversing out of the, the drive and a, a lady was standing over him, uh, blood dripping from his head and what do we know what to do, right? It just so happened that a doctor, albeit an ophthalmologist and his wife drove past, stopped, came out, knew exactly what to ask, knew, knew exactly how to assist in the moment before an ambulance arrived. Now, that's to me leadership. Like it's important to, to chunk it down, but it's really the automatic stuff that you, when, when everything's flying around in the office or there's a certain crisis that happens, you're not gonna sit there and go now, what? You know, now what, what did Brian say? What, what, uh, now they're, they're, Absolutely. I, it just needs to be automatic. And the simpler yeah. it is, and the models that you can access is really the key. Is that um, you, you've been, a, um, you know, some senior leadership teams and some big companies for many years. So is that not only for yourself, is that what you see, but is that what you observe of others that you're working with in those moments? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think. As, as you would know, in leadership, particularly when you get to the point of being a CEO, you have so many things coming at you all the time. It's really easy to be overwhelmed or to just deal with the immediate crisis in front of you and, and not necessarily have context. And if you're trying to build an organization for the long term, you've got to really focus on what's the culture I'm creating in this place. And I found that you, rather than just bouncing around like a pinball, from one idea to the next idea, having some sort of overarching simple framework, I think is helpful. And exactly to your point in times of crisis, being able to go bang, 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 bang. Those are the things I need to think about. The other thing it's interesting, I actually talk about, there's a chapter on crisis management in the book, because as it happens through my career, I've had more than my fair share of them. Um, 
And, and the other thing I would add to that is practice. Um, that, that if you practice in advance and you think about, okay, what are the kind of situations I'm going to face? And then what will I need to do then? You're much more ready to deal with stuff when it comes at you. So uh, just as a bit of a digression, I think that that crisis management piece and leadership in times of crisis is, is a really important issue and obviously an issue we've seen over the last 12 months. Mm, yeah, because for those that are listening, it's um, what March of 2021. So we've all gone through uh, the pandemic together globally, actually. So, um, and it's interesting because um, we know obviously the people high up at Australia Post, we're the fifth largest customer yeah. of theirs. And they, I don't know whether it's annually, I think it is annually, they do this big kind of get strategic getaway for a weekend or a week or whatever they do to then go through all those crises, all those situations that may come up. And uh, they were telling us that of all those years and of all those weeks of compiling compendiums of when this happens, this is what we'll do. No one ever brought up a global pandemic and said uh, so they were flying by the seat of their pants um, at that time. So talking about the pandemic, um, is your book, The Leadership Star, is it a pandemic book where you locked away and you thought uh, this is a great opportunity put to put pen to paper? How did it come about? Yeah, so I actually started the book over ten years ago. Um, I had a, a communications woman who worked at me at my pre, one of my previous jobs at A and Z, and who said that framework that you've been teaching people internally that would make a great book. And uh, and I thought, well, that's interesting. So we started it. She was helping me at the time with it, and uh, and then I I was in the UK, and I just got incredibly busy. I was working at RBS um, right after the financial crisis, and we were trying to save the biggest bank failure in history. So I was pretty busy. So I just parked it. And um, and last year was the perfect time. Obviously, I had some time on my hands and I was I was locked up uh, along with everybody else. And so it was the nice environment to concentrate. But it, also the pandemic itself made me think, actually, this is a really good time to share this because inevitably this crisis is not just a blip, then everything's going to go back to normal. I don't know what you think, but I'm sure you see in your business, the shift, for example, to digital, we've seen by some measures, a seven year acceleration in the adoption of digital through all levels of society, certainly all demographic levels. And, and so that's going to cascade into changes within companies as they adapt to digitization, as they adapt to remote learning, all those sort of remote working, all those sorts of things. And so people are unsettled and people in organizations are going to be worried about their jobs. They're going to be worried about how the job is changing. Uh, and, and so there's going to be a real demand for leaders to step up and help people through that. And so the framework that I'd been intending to do as a book, I thought, actually, that's going to be really helpful to people during this time, whether you're trying to manage a small team or you're managing a large organization, having some way to think about the challenge that you face, think about how do I bring my organization through this period of change? I thought it was going to be uh, pretty helpful. So that was a, a another motivating factor, and it put an extra little lens on my thinking about how to think about. Okay, well, given the, that's why I wrote the the chapter on crisis was I, I went back and thought, well, gee, given all those things I went through, what have I learned that might be helpful to to other leaders who are trying to adapt to this period? Mm. I think everyone can tell. I mean, the, the disadvantage of calling my podcast "Plugged and Unplanned" is that, uh, in, as a CEO, I do, you know, stuff or research on my on my guest. Um, so I probably should have been. Uh, I can just tell straight away, and I think everyone can tell that you've you've led some pretty big companies in an industry that is very very big globally. So you've had to sit in boardrooms and and deal with a lot of um, stakeholders and, and a, and a you know, centuries of, of the way that we've always done it. And with the digital age, things have been changing and banks have been um, re reinventing themselves and, and, and so forth. It's, it must've been, it's, it, you know, must've been like, you know, trying to command um, a marauding group of, of, <laughs> of of invaders in in some ways how, how have you how do you plunk yourself into a large company and a large organization like that and then even try and assess where they're at so you can then work out where the hell you're going well uh, 
it's funny. I um, the, the Marauders example. I mean, I'm not sure most bankers would want to be thought of as Marauders, but I'm sure a lot of people we do as the do view, do view them that way. Um, I often said that actually running a big organization, you don't so much um, run it as ride it. You know, it's a bit like being on a very large horse that um, if you uh, if you're lucky, it'll go where you ask it to go. But if it decides it wants to stop and eat grass, um, you know, it can take a um, it can take a lot of energy to get it moving again. Um, uh, well, there's a, a variety of things. One of the things that um, I the way I used to think about it is that you try and get a perspective from inside, outside, up and down, um, all through different dimensions. So I found myself um, I don't know if your podcast is visual, but but I, I find myself often thinking of, of the organization in three dimensions and trying to turn it and look at it from an outside view, from an inside view, um, and so on. And one of the ways that I used to do that, whenever I'd start a role, I would ask people to write to me and I would, and I would ask them to write to me around five questions, uh, which is uh, what's good about the organization that we need to keep, what's bad about the organization and, and we need to change, um, what do you most hope that I will do what do you most fear that I might do? And have you got any other advice for me? And I, and so I would, um, and I made a point of this. I didn't send an email. I, I actually wrote a, a letter and I hand signed every letter. And then I sent those letters. I would usually, uh, I think when I came into Westpac, I think I sent out about 300 of them. And I sent them to people at all levels in the organization, all through different parts of the organization. In my first job there, I wasn't CEO, I was running one of the big divisions, um, but I asked people in other divisions for their observations as well. And then I asked a bunch of suppliers, I asked um, competitors where I could um, get an insight, I asked market researchers, um, I asked industry bodies, I asked politicians, I asked media, I asked investors, and I asked lots of people from all those different perspectives those questions. And then I collated it all down and I found that that approach gave me very quickly a sense of what the common themes were. Um, and then, so that was one thing that trying to get a perspective very rapidly from different, different angles. Um, the other thing that I used to do, um, which I found very, very effective was a, what I used to call a brutal truth session. So there's a, there's a great book, uh, good to great. I'm sure m most people who are into business have read it. I mean, and rightly so it's, it's a terrific book. And it talks about how great companies face the brutal reality of their situation. And so what I used to do is ask the market researchers, the financial analysts, the risk analysts, the um, strategy people to put together a series of perspectives just based on data of how we were performing, how we were performing relatively, what we were doing well, what we weren't doing well, how the market was changing, how the market was growing. And, you know, it's not that hard to come up with a, with a list of dimensions that, you, that are relevant for your business that you'd want to look at. And then we would go away for a day. And for the first probably five hours, we would just fire hose ourselves with data. So I would have a series of people come in and just present information from all those different perspectives. And the point of that was, number one, to make sure we were dealing with facts. And number two, to make sure everybody had the same frame of reference. Because if you're sitting as the head of marketing or you're sitting as the head of the branch network or you're sitting as the one running the back office operations, you have a particular view on life. It's the old analogy I always loved about the, the five blind men and the elephant. You know that one um, about, do you know that story? So yeah. five blind men are standing next to an elephant. Someone comes along and asks them to describe an elephant. And one of them says, an elephant is like a rope. And the next blind man says, no, no, no. An elephant is like a tree trunk. And then the third blind man says, I don't know what you're talking about. An elephant is like a big brick wall. And then the, fourth, the next blind man says, no, no, no. An elephant is like a big snake. And of course, they're all seeing one part of the of the thing. And and so I wanted to make sure everybody in the team has the same data and has the same perspective. And so we would spend five or six hours doing that. And then we would say, right, what have we heard? And we would then spend the afternoon 
summarizing what the big issues were that we heard, grouping them up, and then talking about, okay, well, what are the priorities and what are we going to do? And I always found that we could walk out of that room knowing, having a common view of what the priorities were, and very importantly, who was going to be responsible for dealing with them. Mm-hmm. And that, so I use that technique as a, as a way to get to the, the bottom of those things. But I suppose, obviously, it's, it's an ongoing thing as well. You have to get out and see with your own eyes. You have to go and observe. You have to go and experience what customers experience. I'm sure you go online and buy books from Booktopia and see, see how long it takes for it to arrive and what condition it's in. And, um, and I think it's very important, particularly for CEOs, to never lose sight of that going back to the basics and what's the customer experiencing as opposed to what I'm being told they're experiencing. I think everyone who is listening can tell that probably what is in Brian's book is definitely worth reading. (laughs) I mean, you can tell like just some of the things, the way that you like as a CEO and what you just said before about um, how you went and captured it, that information and you, you need to do that at going into a large organization, but does it, no, not does, we know that not everyone does that. Is that something that you intuitively learned or did you go to um, a business school to learn that? Did you read it in a book and you said, oh, I love that idea, I'm gonna apply that? Or did you just, was it just your intuition and go, this is how I wanna approach this? How did that come about? So I don't have an MBA, which is part of the story of the book in a way in that I'm a self-taught manager, people leader. Um, I came to it fairly late. I was a management consultant for 10 years. Um, and in management consulting, we used to joke that you don't really manage people, you just point them because they're all insecure overachievers, um, I suppose, like me, who you you just say, we need you to go in that direction and off they go. Um, and I was put into this position of managing a team of people uh, for one of my clients, which was ANZ back in the 90s. And genuinely to my surprise that I actually loved it and that I got way more satisfaction out of seeing other people do well than my own personal uh, success. And um, so I, I, I felt like I had to make up for the fact that I didn't have an MBA. I'd only been a banking consultant. And so I just read everything I could. And I talked to people and I, I looked at businesses and leaders that I admired. Um, and I just picked up lots of little things from everywhere. And then I would try things. And um, the particular thing that we just talked about is something I think I got out of a book somewhere um, that I, I thought, well, actually, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I tried it and it worked really well. There's other things that I've seen an idea in one place and I've put my own spin on it and applied it somewhere else. And there's examples of that in the book. Um, so I've just, uh, I guess because I've had this slight insecurity that I didn't have any formal training, I felt like I had to give myself my own training. And, and I did that through predominantly through reading. Amazing. So one of the things, and I noticed when you rattled off all those very important stakeholders or influencers or observers, that you you questioned, um, it was evident to me because for 17 years we've asked the one question, what do our customers want? And that's all we've really focused on. Um, We won't focus on many things, but by answering that question, you go from zero to $200 million, $217 million business, uh, mostly without funding. And and so you didn't actually really mention customers. You probably just assumed how. I, I think that's because that's so embedded right. in the way that I think about things. Um, uh, uh, the starting point for me was always going out and visiting in retail banking, visiting branches, talking to customers, sitting on the phone and listening, reading the letters that they write in. Um, that I, 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 It's funny. It's exactly that. It's so embedded in the way that I, I think about what the business is there. I often saw my job as being particularly this is in the context of a, you're you're sitting on over a very large business with a bunch of different businesses within it. And banks are essentially a conglomerate. And so uh, it's actually how do I make this organization deliver for the customer? That is the challenge. And, and in many cases, what customers want is pretty straightforward um, in, in banking. You know, they want it to work. They want it to be easy. They want to be treated well. They want to be respected. They don't want to repeat themselves. Um, they don't want to be talked down to. And so actually there's plenty of research about what customers want. The issue is banks are, get so big and complicated that they get in the way of that. And so I suppose that's why for me, it was often, I can see what the customer would want. 
why can't we deliver it? What's getting in the way of this? And that that often tended to be the focus of the roles that I was in was was how do we fix this? How do we make this better for customers? Yeah, so it's it's a bit like a government, I guess. Like um, you cannot please everyone, so you've got to work um, as hard as you can to please as many people. I mean, um, banks banks do not have um, a great um, esteem by the by the the public. They they think that they're profit hungry money making machines, and we're just and cannot in disbelief about about how many billions of dollars of profit it must must be pretty thick skin to, to kind of have to operate in that world and and know that you're adding value but at the same time uh, you're constantly having uh, detractors out there that um, because you know if you really asked all all customers not just you know retail but business to business business customers like booktop like um you know list all the things you want from your bank a bank will never be able to deliver that profitably. Um, I, I can only assume it must be a, quite a tussle. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I always understood it because money is emotional. And in the early stages of my career, I spent a lot of time trying to really understand the psychology that customers had when they came to to banking. And, um, and that has totally shaped the way that I've approached the businesses that I've run, was trying to really understand where people are coming from and how they think about it. And, um, and I think that's, and, and, and interestingly, that's part of why banks in many cases have gotten it wrong is because they've misunderstood where customers are coming from. And, and so my perspective is that banking is an emotional business and, and, that, and that's because money is deeply tied up in people's sense of self-worth. Um, and a lot of what banks have done is talk down to people or exercise their muscle in ways that make people feel out of control or taken advantage of. And, um, and so I worked really hard through my career, and particularly as I became clearer and clearer about that being the essence of the issue, to really focus on service and really focus on training our people around understanding that service is about a genuine desire to help and, and that, that we, we, everyone talks about putting customers first that is really about understanding what's a customer trying to do and what's our job in helping them do that. And if we do that well, we'll make money. Um, and by the way, I don't see a conflict between doing that and having a successful company because my view is that banking is an annuity business and you actually want to develop a relationship with people where they want to bank with you forever. And if you do that, you make money in the long run, even if you don't make money in the short run. I think it's the right way to run a bank. And that's, that's certainly what we were trying to do um, during my time at Westpac. Uh, I think, some of it is inevitable, though. I mean, um, I made the point before about big banks being conglomerates, um, and and that is something that's understandably hard to explain because most people aren't interested in banking, and and rightly so. You know, it's it's not something that people get excited about. They're they're trying to live their lives. They're trying to grow their business. They're trying to educate their children, live in a nice house. They're not interested in the ins and outs of banking. And and so um, one of the dilemmas that banks have is that. Um, there are some value in having a bunch of different businesses that are interrelated that make for a successful company. So a bank like OSPAC has a very large institutional banking business, which is lending money to companies that are exporting to China, um, that is uh, helping large agricultural concerns manage their foreign exchange risks. Those are very large businesses, and the banks make significant money by providing significant balance sheet and, and taking risk to support those sorts of things. And so when profits get reported, it's including a whole series of other businesses that, that aren't the branches in the street. And in fact, in a low rate environment like we're in at the moment, retail banking, the deposit taking side of retail banking, banks lose money. They actually lose money. It's more expensive to put internet banking and, uh, and branches and all the people in it and call centers. That's actually a, a loss leader. You do that because then people put their deposits with you and banks only make money when they're then able to lend those deposits out. But the, the actual business of what most people think of as dealing with the banks, banks actually don't make money on that. They make money because that enables them to do other things. Um, and, and now you've probably spent way more time listening to me say that than most people would ever want to spend on that issue. It's kind of hard to explain um, for a normal person who isn't interested in this. Um, and so 
yeah, you, you get used to the fact that people are, are going to come to those views. They're going to just simplify it down to look at that profit number that a bank has made. They must be making that off of me. And, and therefore, you know, that's outrageous. And I understand that. But um, for those that are listening, I, I, I am, uh, I have the luxury of having Brian's book in my hand, which is pre-publication comes out in April, beginning of April, which is not that far away now, a few weeks away, a couple of weeks away. Um, I can tell by the chapter headings um, that it's it's industry agnostic with what, what you've written in terms around leadership. Um, yes. You've, you've really distilled that down to um, be able to tr be transferred to other, you know, other any industry. Um, I, just talk a little then about the way that you've, you've kind of approached. I guess in, in many ways, I think what I want to know is for, for someone who picks this up, where are they on the journey to get the greatest value? Are they not a leader wanting to be a leader? Um, are they are they already at a CEO at my, at my level? Business is quite large, and if I read it ten years ago, it would have been you know, beyond me. You know, what, what's what's the what's the perfect audience who can who can really um, you know get the greatest value out of your book? Sure. Well, I'm of two minds in that and in, in answering that. So I tried to write it in a way as the book I wish I had had when I was first given a leadership role. So I went from managing consulting teams to suddenly I was in charge of a thousand person credit card business at ANZ. Um, and I, I was incredibly fortunate that my boss took a, took a risk on me and put me in that position, but it was pretty intimidating. And I had to scramble to try to get my head around, okay, how on earth do I deal with this? So in a way I'm writing that book for myself of, of 20 years ago. Um, but I would also say that Along the way, in, as my roles got bigger and bigger, and as I ultimately became CEO of one of the largest banks in the world, I continued to learn things and I continued to refine it and I continued to learn practical ideas that worked. And that's all in there. So I would say that as a CEO, if you're grappling with how do I sustain engagement, how I sustain a culture, how do I think about what, what do I personally need to do? And I should have said that earlier that the, 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 the concept of this was there are lots of theoretical descriptions of how you should manage a culture. I found when I asked people, okay, that's all great, but what do I personally need to do? Nobody could tell me. And so I tried to write this in the perspective of if I'm personally the leader and I got to wake up on Monday morning and go, things, what, what should I do that, that can make the biggest influence? And, and so I would say that the framework, even for someone who's already CEO of a company to look at it and go, oh yeah, actually, yeah, I'm doing that, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. I hadn't thought about that one. Actually, I haven't been doing that. Okay, maybe, maybe let me put a bit more time into that one. Um, so I, I'm hoping that it will be relevant for leaders at all levels, both people who are trying to get their head around what is it to be a leader, as well as someone who's already in situ and trying to figure out how do I, how do I pull the levers better? Um, and where should I spend my time? Um, interesting, the point about it being industry agnostic is, is absolutely right. And I think the best way to, and certainly that was my intent, because um, I felt like the things I learned were relevant. I was having lunch with a couple of police officers, actually, um, who were, they were um, moonlighting, doing something else. And I, I have a long story, but I ended up having lunch with these guys, really nice guys. And um, we were chatting and I said, I was working on this book. And they said, what's the book? And so I told them the framework. And they said, they, they paused and they went, I wish our bosses did that. And, and, they, and I said, do you think that's relevant? And they said, oh yeah, you know, you know, my boss never does that. He never does that. Um, and, and so that gives me some comfort. And um, I've, I've had people read it in the not-for-profit sector um, who've said, yep, this is, this is really helpful. So I really tried to make it certainly not bank, it's about banking. It's, it's, it's probably generically mostly commercial, but I, I think there's relevance there for anybody who's trying to motivate a team of people. Mm. And of the five points of the star, is there one where from your, I mean, you're obviously worked up within the organization and you're, you're thinking of it for yourself and what you're addressing, but when you think about other companies that you meet or that you, you read about or you hear about, is there one point of the star, which is, oh my God, you know, we're so hopeless, you know, as a society or as a, you know, as a, it's the hardest one or it's the one that gets the most neglected. Is there anything that's, or are they all 
just like you pull they're all like cornerstones of each other like you pull one away and there's no start like you, you got each is dependent on each other and if you don't do one of them um then you don't have anything is is there how does that all kind of play out it's all for you know all in or or you you miss one and you neglect one completely and then you, you're done how does how do you so 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 I, I can answer yes to both aspects of that so the concept if you want to build and sustain engagement in an organization you got to be doing all five is my view and actually there's a sixth which is communication which kind of sits within the five um but but i do think that um there are there are two that i would draw out so I, I, if you ask me what do i think is the biggest gap i would say it's probably the third c which is clarity and in clarity i talk about role clarity goal clarity and behavioral clarity and i think that one of the things that a lot of managers and leaders neglect is being super clear with people about what good looks like and what great looks like and making sure everybody knows exactly what's expected of them um, there's a discussion in there about the difference between lead indicators and lag indicators for example um, and the fact that people need to know these are things that are within my control and here's what i need to achieve with those things often leaders make assumptions that we're just trying to grow profit or we're trying to cut costs and or we're trying to improve customer satisfaction and then they expect people to just go away and figure that out and i think that spending more time being really clear and also clear on who's accountable for things certainly in my career often the things that have gone wrong have been where there's been a lack of clarity of accountability where either everybody thought somebody else was doing something or two people were both trying to do things and it was in conflict. So I think really putting energy into that. The other one though, um, emotionally for me, the biggest learning and it's why I made it the first C is care. And, and that's really about care for individual human beings um, rather than a generic state of being that, oh yeah, I care about my employees, but I don't know their name. Um, you know, I think that if people feel like they matter as an individual human being, you're a long way forward in terms of um, being able to build a successful organization. Do you think, though, that not everyone has that level of, of I'll just say level of care or level of, um, of awareness, even that the, the people that work, work for them and that's a priority for them. They're very self-centered. So therefore, um, that that wouldn't even register. And those that are in those environments where that where the, they feel like they're just working for the paycheck and it's a great job, but you know, the, the organization and the leadership kind of sucks. Is that so? If you don't have it within you to care about people or to be inclusive, um, then it's going to be bloody hard to to kind of execute on all the other things that um, did. So therefore, do you do you have to, um, you know, do some leaders need to really go through this great awakening to actually go, oh my God, you know, um, I've been a tyrant or, and I've now got to, I've got to be, you know, more of a benefactor, more of a, more, you know, more of a, the Dalai Lama. Like, how, how, do, how does anyone, who's working for them or the person who's in that role is are they a lost cause because they just simply don't have it as part of their, their general makeup to even uh, be a be a half decent leader what well, you must have worked with many people who, who probably didn't care as much as you or even there was probably others that you saw that cared a lot um, and how do you how do you work with that well it's a truism that people can spot a phony so if your goal is to build a really strong culture that can sustain over time i think you have to take that seriously um it, it's interesting your point about me caring more I, so i went through a big transition and one of the things in the book there's a chapter that i call you as a leader and it's really about the importance of self-awareness and building self-awareness exactly to your point and and for me that was a really important part of my development as a leader because as I said earlier, I was a management consultant for 10 years. Um, I was a product of the American Ivy League, um, ambitious New York, hard charging, selfish, um, I don't know, elite, whatever you want to call it, right? And I saw myself that way. 
And then I had this experience where I was put into a leadership role and I helped a particular uh, woman to achieve something. And she walked into my office after a number of weeks of struggle with this incredible smile on her face and just said, I did it. And, and I still, that was in 1997. And I still remember where I was standing and where she was standing and the look on her face and how I felt. And days later, I still felt amazing. And I sort of had this awakening that, Hey, it's actually more satisfying to help other people than this personal achievement thing is kind of hollow after a while. And so I, I guess what I encourage people to do is, is to take the time to really reflect on what's important to them and what gives them real deep satisfaction and to connect with that. And then to, to find ways to connect that to what the organization is doing so that people can see that you're not in it just for the money. Because if you're in it just for the money, well, you know, why are they going to care? Why are they going to take it? And, and so I think there, I, I think authenticity and self-awareness are, are really important, but it's also good for the leader. Why do you want to spend your time doing something you don't care about? You know, I mean, life's short, man. You, know, you, you want to spend time doing things that are meaningful and, and give you deep satisfaction. And after you get to a certain point financially or, or whatever, you know, that just doesn't, it just doesn't give you anything after a while. And so I, I think that, um, I think management and leadership is a, is really a very noble calling for many people and should be. And, and the ability to, I mean, you, you think about what, what you've created in your business and for the people that, how many people do you have working for you now? Uh, it's about 230. Right. I mean, you've changed the lives of those people and their families and their families' families. And that's an incredibly amazing thing. And you, you've set an example for Australian business people about what can be done and that you, yeah, you can take on the big behemoths and of the world and win and, and be successful and carve out a niche. And you don't have to be afraid um, to do these things and, and to, to create something. And I think leadership offers people the ability to do that. And, and, uh, and leaders who, who figure out what that is for themselves and find a way to share that with their people um, are going to be far more successful and, and far happier. Yeah, when you're when you start from one, um, which is what I did to to many people, there are uh, you do go through in levels of the atmosphere in various stratospheres and whatever else you've got to get through as you as you break from from one. Uh, one layer to through the turbulence to the next clean bit of clean air and, and so on and so forth. It takes a, it does take a bit, but it, it is very different. Like I, I, I know within myself, there is, I'm the CEO of Booktopia, but there is no way that I can be the CEO of a bank or, or of a, and a huge engineering company. Count yourself lucky. That's all <laughs> I can say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you, you wouldn't have bestowed that. I, I know which one I'd choose. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah it's it's um but it, it is interesting so when i mean you for those that are listening i'm i'm talking to brian hartzer the author of the leadership star a practical guide to building engagement i always find the subtitles um very important to any of the business books that i've um that i uh, recommend or the authors that i'm interviewing uh, and and leadership and building engagement that that combination between the two it's it's um it's it really it you know brings everything together as you were writing the book because you you said before you started it 10 years ago it was a collection of thoughts and then you're able to kind of bring it together was there anything that you um su surprised yourself or or go oh my god you know you would have had a lot of insights as you'd hope um any author goes through a business book um, authors in particular, that you, you go, wow, that was really cool to kind of stop and reflect and then find the words to distill that down for all of us to read what happened on the way. Yeah. So first, your point about the subtitle, we spent far more time debating the subtitle than we did the main title. Um, and and, and I, I certainly have tried to send a message with that, which is that 
on this topic of engagement, when I went looking, there were lots of books of theory and concept, but there were almost no books I could find by people who actually had to do leadership about what do you need, what do you personally need to do? And, and so I, I felt like that was a gap that I could fill. And, and that's why we called it a practical guide was here's some things you can really go do. The, the writing process, I've always found that writing helps you figure out what you think. That, that there's something about that process of sitting down and typing or writing longhand, or in my case, I type, but that somehow connects your brain in a different way that allows you to draw ideas out. And for me, when I started, the book emerged out of a presentation I used to give to leaders in my organizations over many years. And it was an hour, hour and a half presentation. And the first question I had for myself was, do I actually have enough to write a book or is this just an article? And when I sat down and started writing, it exactly to your point, it drew things out that I hadn't connected before. So for example, there's a chapter on clarity. And when I talked, when I used to give my presentation to people, I would, I would talk about clarity in terms of the goals that you set for people and the behavioral expectations that you set for people. When I started writing, I realized, actually, there's a whole other aspect of this, which is role clarity, which is do people actually know what their job is? And, and what's the process that you go through to make sure that people know what their job is? Now, that might sound really, really obvious. But if I take the example of a startup, we've got a huge startup community in Australia at the moment. So one of the standard titles in startups is product manager. Now, if, if I'm running a startup and I go hire a product manager from say Uber, well, that person's idea of what their job is might be completely different than what I think a product manager is in the context of the business I'm in. And if I don't sit down and actually talk that through with the person in detail, they could go along on their merry way and you've actually set them up to fail. Because six months later, you're saying, hang on, you haven't done this, this, this. Now, well, I didn't know that was what you want me to do. So that's an example. So I ended up writing a whole section on, on role clarity and the way that you get that and, and a practical approach to figuring that out and how you have those conversations with people. Um, and that came from sitting down and having to write it and, and realizing that, well, if I'm going to talk about this, then I actually need to address that. And now that I think of it, actually, I learned some things about that. And I can share that. And so I, I found the process for me was a really nice way to synthesize all the things that I've learned in the in the in the maelstrom that I've been in for the last 20 years. It's funny that you mentioned that one because it was only yesterday I was in a meeting with uh, the the lady who heads up all of our trade product, and we're we're talking about titles as the business grows, and and so head of product, right? So head of all the books. Um, but then in IT, uh, product is actually the website and all of the, the kind of platforms that those guys are building. And she said to me, she, she's been at a, like a, a dinner party or a, or a barbecue or something. And she says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm head of, what are you doing? Oh, I'm head of product at Booktopia. And uh, they go, oh, I'm head of product as well. And they start talking about their jobs and they go, you're in IT. Uh, we don't do anything the same. And, and I'm curious, uh, given, you know, now this is just a bit of free consulting for Booktopia. Um, the the importance of trying to get an, um, a title as silly as it sounds but a title that everyone understands that's not like they you hear the chief happiness officer or, or the you know the chief clarity officer or names that people get now what what is what is that how important yeah. is it actually in your organizations to have names that everyone understands which then it's much easier to then get the clarity of the role and the respect from others about what you do and, and understanding what that other team does. Yeah. So for me personally, I've always preferred really simple, straightforward titles that explain what people do. And, but the difficulty is the reality of human psychology is people care a lot about their title because it's one of the markers of success in their mind or in an organization. Um, so I had various goes at trying to rationalize and simplify titles. Um, I remember uh, one of the, I created a job that I called, I ended up calling chief of staff, which was someone to work in, as a member of my management team, but effectively alongside my management team to help me make it all work. This is in very, very large organizations where coordination of information is really important. So, on. But I was very clear that this is not someone 
to just go and produce PowerPoint packs for me or, or, the, or the kinds of things a lot of people had offsiders and large organizations that did these sort of things. And I tried to explain that this is someone to make our team work better. Well, the next thing I knew, everyone in my team had a chief of staff and all they were was the people that were making PowerPoint packs. And, you know, I pulled my hair out over that. So I, I think you, you can have a go at, at um, simplifying titles. I'm certainly personally a massive advocate for keep it simple and explain what it actually is more clarity is always better, but I'm also after decades of this slightly resigned to the fact that people, I mean, I guess it's a bit easier if it's your company, you can do whatever you like, but, um, but people seem to spend a lot of time worrying about what their title is. And um, it can be, it can be one of those little frustrations of leadership. I, I don't think um, uh, just because it's my company and it's not really my company because we listed on the ASX in December and there's many shareholders and there's many there's many um, team members who are very um, very vocal and very invested in in the success of the business. So uh, that that is um, that is an illusion that I do, do not get hooked up in. Actually, one of the things that I do talk about in some of my keynote in some of my keynotes, most of my keynotes, is that you know I am not the business, and yeah. and that the business is the business and and I, I'm a three-dimensional thinker as well, so I separate myself from that, and I'm constantly looking at what does the business need. It's a very important um, aspect to to um, the success of Booktopia in terms of my contribution along the way to be able to see yeah. from afar and a different angle. As you talked about the elephant before, um, the, all those different different angles um, to, to do that. Um, we've, uh, we're everyone, we're, we're kind of coming to the end of our time with Brian and it's um it's, it really feels like we've we've scratched the tip of the iceberg or the tip of the north star as it were um and plenty plenty more to dive into this should session should really go on for a few hours so we we all <laughs> we all are the, the the better for it but i guess is there anything Brian that we didn't kind of cover off that you think oh we should have really talked about that or here's an interesting thing that um or something to leave us with um, I'm hoping that after people have listened to this uh, podcast that they're inspired to go and buy the book from Booktopia or from any bookstore. It's a shame well, that uh, it, it's a sorry, uh, it's a shame that um, airports aren't open at the moment because I can imagine, you know, this is the perfect book uh, to walk onto a plane with and go from one city to another city or country to another country. We can't do that right now. And uh, I bet you it's that kind of, it's the, that's the kind of, um, book that people would want to buy and in, on in, in doing that kind of trip because you get a chance to reflect. So what, you know, what can you leave us with? Well, I hope so. First of all, the intent here is really to be helpful to people. Um, I, I've loved the opportunity to lead groups of people. I mean, you would know how satisfying that is to see a business grow and to see people succeed and grow in their own careers. And, uh, and it's hard and there's lots of things you can get wrong. And, and I, I'm hoping that this is a shortcut for a lot of people to um, to be better leaders and become better leaders. But the other thing, the thing I would leave people with, I suppose, is that anybody can do this. Um, sometimes this notion of um, being a CEO, somehow this is this incredible heroic thing that that only certain people can do. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a real person, you're a real person. Um, there's a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of timing involved, but there's also a lot of discipline and 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 applying yourself well. And I'm hopeful that if people read this book, they're going to find some things that they can apply regardless of what level they are in their position. They're going to make them better leaders and make their teams more successful and and help them have great careers. And that doesn't mean you have to be a CEO anyway. I'm, there's a lot of downsides to being a CEO, but but I do think that um, it will help people. Get more satisfaction and more success out of out of leading groups of people, whether that's a small group of people or or a large organization. Thank, yeah, thank you. I, as you were saying that, for some reason, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to think of it. Or it's the first time I've actually thought of it. Um, um, so I'm not going to claim it. I, I bet you it's out there. That leadership is a bit like parenting. Like there's no degree in parenting. You. You don't go, oh, you want to have a child? Okay, well, come on. You have to finish this big course and we're going to have to um, 
you're going to have to qualify and you know, we want to see the certification so then you can become a parent. Quite often leadership is bestowed upon you um, because you're just very good at what you do and they go, all right, well, you know, you're going to be the leader or you want to be a leader, but you've not done a degree in leadership. And, and it's unfortunately a baptism of fire, trial by error, all those kind of sayings that you can come up with. And uh, the more that we get to um, um, kind of experience it, but then uh, take the time by reading a book like yours and investing in yourself to learn um, and cheat. You got to cheat. You got to read these books because um, trying to work it out by yourself along the way um, is okay. And if you're committed to the outcome, then you'll probably get there. But um, you know, read from the experiences of others like Brian's, and then um, you'll you'll have an edge and everyone will think you're absolutely amazing, but you actually cheated because you read Brian's book and other people's books. And yeah, well, we all try and stand on the shoulders of giants, don't we? And, and books are a wonderful thing. And thank God there's still people like you guys out there promoting books and the collective knowledge that we can all learn from and grow from. Yeah, good on you. Th thanks again. And look forward to hearing how successful your book is and, and wish you all the best in the future. Thanks so much, Tony. It's been great, great to meet you. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.